Good afternoon and welcome to this gathering of Covenant Hope Church. It's my joy and privilege to open up God's Word with you all this afternoon. So please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 10. The book of Titus, you'll find it towards the end of your Bible, a little after First and Second Timothy. There's Titus before you get to Philemon. So please turn with me to Titus. I have a little daughter called Charlotte. Many of you know that already. And it's been a real joy just in the last few weeks to see her little life transforming before our eyes. She's just turned, wait a minute, I, I, I don't remember the exact months, but she, she turns two in June, so she's about 18, no, 20 months old. But just in the last couple of weeks, even literally the last two weeks, She's begun to say new things and do new actions, and it's been amazing. So, for example, uh, I wake her up generally in the morning during the week, and I go in to wake her up, and I say, hey, baby, and she started to say, hey, baby, (laughs) back to me. That was a new thing. I was like, okay, I'm actually daddy, your baby, but I can see how that's confusing. She has a little kitchen set in her room that she loves to play with, and recently I've noticed she takes these little toy chickens, puts them in the frying pan, puts them on top of the stove that she has there. It's not a real stove. Don't worry. And then there's an oven part, and she puts it in there just for good measure to make sure it's cooked. It's amazing. I'm not sure where she learned that. Where where did she see that? Uh, Probably in the kitchen, obviously, watching maybe our housemate Ivan as he cooks chicken on the stove. She also has started to flip open books and just start to jabber to herself. She points at words and pictures and starts to pretend to read. And she's also been learning how to play with other kids. And so it's been fun to take her over. She wants to go almost every evening over to the Abraham's house. They live two doors down and they've got a little play set in their front yard, and she copies Holden. She follows Holden around. She jumps on their little bicycle, little tricycle, and she tries to do that. She's not very good at it yet. Falls off often. But she'll go down the slide, follows after Holden down the slide, and even Shepard, he's a lot younger than Charlotte, but he's already starting to learn how to climb up and slide down the toy slide in their front yard. What I'm describing is how people learn And obviously, little kids, they they learn as they're growing. They learn so much in these first few months and years of their life. But they learn not just through us giving them instructions. They learn by watching and observing other people's lives. And the same is true not just for little kids, but the same is actually true for Christians. Godly leaders teach not merely through their instruction, like what I'm doing, opening up the Bible and speaking, as important as that is, as essential as that is, but they also teach through their example, the example of their lives. They model with their lives what they encourage through their sermons. And as we'll see in just these few verses here in Titus chapter 2, we'll see that clearly in the life of Titus and even in bondservants that we'll see addressed. So this little letter, Titus, it's very short 
It's uh, one of the pastoral epistles along with First and Second Timothy. These were letters that Paul the Apostle wrote to these younger pastors who were doing ministry. They were co-workers with him. And so he's writing to these young apprentices in ministry to, to help them to know how to lead the church, how to do ministry. And so we've seen already in the letter that Titus had been left behind. Paul left him on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And in this little letter, just three chapters, Paul paints a portrait of a healthy church environment. He paints a picture for them of what a healthy church looks like. And so he begins with the need to appoint trustworthy teachers, elders in every single church in each town on that little island. He wanted those uh, trustworthy teachers in place because we, we learned that that was to help handle the terrible teachers who were infiltrating the churches and upsetting these, 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 uh, these churches. They were upsetting believers. And then last time we were in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 2, and here Paul began to give instructions for proper Christian living, healthy Christian living in the church. And so, we saw there that he said to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So, what accords with sound doctrine? Of course, he was supposed to preach sound doctrine, but he had to preach what was fitting with sound doctrine. Also, what was consistent with the gospel message. Because the gospel, when it's received by faith, it saves us, but it also begins to transform our lives. And so, Paul we saw last time Paul begins to apply the gospel to different groups in the church. He begins with older men, then he goes to older women. These older women he encourages to teach the younger women how to conduct themselves. And then finally, last time we were here, Michael taught about how he urges younger men to be self-controlled. So, our passage today, it completes this list. And so, Paul adds two other groups to his list of people that the gospel should apply to. Let's consider that now. So, turn with me, if you're not already there, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. They say this, "'Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His help as we consider these verses. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O oh Lord, You are our rock. You are our Redeemer. Amen. If you're familiar with Paul's writings, it's not surprising to you to see Paul make applications of the gospel to all kinds of people, men and women, young and old, husbands and wives, parents, children, slaves and free, and masters. 
These are sometimes referred to as household codes, as they represented the typical Roman household at the time in the Roman Empire. But in this household code, sandwiched right here in verses 7 and 8, we find that Paul includes Titus himself. It's a little unusual, but it may be because Titus was to be in the midst of the community. Maybe that's why he's placed him here in the list of people to address. But it's more likely that he's just following on from the younger men that were mentioned in the previous verse. Titus himself would have been younger than Paul. He was his child in the faith, and so he was one of the younger men. And so following Paul's charge to Titus, he concludes with a list of instructions for bondservants or slaves. But from both of these charges, both to Titus and to the bondservants, we see that transformation, gospel transformation, is caught as well as taught. Gospel transformation is caught as well as taught. The kind of transformation that should flow out from the gospel message is caught as well as taught. And what I mean by that is that God works through us watching godly examples and imitating them, as well as listening to godly examples. Just like little Charlotte learns by watching and imitating us, as well as the instructions that we give her, both are important for gospel transformation. We change through watching other people's lives as well as listening to them. And so let me encourage you to find godly examples to follow. Catch some of that gospel transformation in your life that you want. We see that in Paul's exhortations to Titus. Look there at verse 7. This first instructions to Titus in verses 7 and 8 are an encouragement for us to find and follow godly examples. In verses 7 and 8, Paul addresses Titus himself, and he calls him on, as, as the leader to set an example to those who he's ministering to. And so, the, for the elders here, Brian and Frank and Nissen and Michael, this is encouragement for us to be the kind of leaders, not just in our teaching, but in our lives, that are worth following. There's a particular application for us as those that lead this church. But also for the rest of you, look for leaders worth following. Look for godly examples. We see that right there in verse 7. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now, consider that very first word. He says, show. Titus, as, as, a, as a pastor, can't just tell people what to do. He needs to show them how to do it. He needs to model it for them. He needs to show them what it looks like and set an example. So let me ask you, whose life are you watching and modeling your life on? We all do it. This is just natural to being human, that we are imitators. We copy people. We follow their example. We learn from them. And so, what examples are you following? Take some time to think about that. Consider that for yourself. Maybe like Charlotte, it's your parents whose example you follow, and the people that live near you like Ivan, or maybe it's your friends like Holden, someone you admire, 
How are they influencing you? What are they teaching you? And how would you characterize those people? Are they godly? Are they models of wisdom? Or are they models of worldliness? It's worth considering. Who are you imitating? Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Built into this very proverb is the assumption of the fact that we follow the people that we choose to spend our time with. And so ask yourself, are you making it a priority to spend time with those who will model godliness for you? Now, of course, we can't control who we spend all of our time with. You can't always choose who your colleagues are or who your classmates are. Some of you are so busy with work, it's hard to find time to spend with Christians in the margins of your life. But what you need to know is that you're making priority for these things. Are you doing that? Are you making it a priority to spend time with and learn from examples of godly role models that are around you? It might mean sacrificing other less important things to be in a godly person's home, to study the Word with them, to sit at their dinner table and see how they have conversation with their family or their friends, to ask them questions about their faith, to watch how they care for other people, to ask them how they fight sin in their life, and to ask them what it looks like to be faithful to God in the midst of a hectic job situation or even maybe unemployment. What does that look like? How can we remain faithful? You know, Titus was a leader, and he was a young one at that, but he was expected to demonstrate in his life what he was calling other people to do. He was to demonstrate self-control. He was to demonstrate purity, kindness, love, service. And Paul calls Titus to be the embodiment of gospel doctrine. He was to be a stark contrast to the leaders that we learn about in chapter 1, who claimed to know God, but they denied God with their works. They denied Him by their actions. No, Titus needs to practice what he preaches. His life should show others what it looks like. What does it look like for the gospel to take hold of you and to change you from the inside out? What does the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ do in a person? He wasn't just to do it in some areas. No, Paul says to be a model of of godliness in all respects, because the gospel actually applies and works its way out into every area of our lives. Now, thinking about this, if Titus was going to be an example in all respects of godliness, then that assumes that people were able to see into his life. And so, there really shouldn't be an area of our lives that isn't affected by our faith. It should be seen in all respects, but it also should, there shouldn't be areas of our life that are kept off limits from the world, especially for us as leaders. A leader's life should, for the most part, be lived on display for others to see, not hidden, not in the dark. That doesn't mean that pastors or elders or leaders or godly people don't have private time for themselves or family time where it's reserved just for their family. Even in doing that, they're modeling their own need for rest, their own devotion to the Lord, and their, the, the priority of 
of caring for their family first before they care for the flock. So Paul's not calling Titus to be sinlessly perfect by any means, but he is to live a life that models maturity in the faith. And that's how those under his leadership will grow. Just as much as through his teaching, they'll grow through the example of his life. And then Paul goes on to encourage Titus further in one specific area of his life and his leadership. And so look back there at verse um, 8. Well, it's the end of 7 and the beginning of 8. He says, In your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that can't be condemned. Again, we see that word that we saw in the very first sentence, show. How can, how can teaching show something? Doesn't teaching tell something? So we might imagine that this sentence would say, in your teaching, encourage dignity and integrity and sound speech, or something like that. But Paul says that his teaching should show those things. And I think the reason that Paul chose the, this wording here is because he's addressing not just what Titus teaches, but even the way that Titus teaches others. As we've already seen in Titus, it's, it's important that the content of the preaching be solid, be truthful, be connected with God's Word and faithful to it. But it's also important the way we teach, the manner of our teaching and preaching. Our teaching should show integrity and dignity. It should be honorable. It should be serious. It should be weighty. These things are so important. We shouldn't be flippant and careless with how we teach and how we use God's Word. Our sermons are unfolding the words of the Creator of all things. Think about that for a second, that even as I'm standing up here, as insufficient as I am, what I'm trying to do is point to words that were inspired by the Spirit of God, the God who made everything, made you and me. So, the occasional humorous comment is, is fine, but we shouldn't be spending our time when we are preaching, joking around. Not when we're hearing from God. Not when we're considering matters that pertain to the eternal destinies of individuals. No, this should be a serious and sobering matter. It should be a time when the preacher is serious and dignified, has integrity, shows it. Paul's last comment there is that Titus's teaching should show sound speech, and the word sound, it's repeated throughout this little letter. It's repeated over and over again. Paul has told Titus to teach what fits with or flows from sound doctrine, and older men are to be sound in the faith and love and steadfastness. It's going to be repeated again in the letter. It's used over and over. Here's This little letter is one of the places where it's most used. Another place that we see this word used is in the Gospels, where it's used about Jesus' healing ministry, where Jesus went around and made people well. He made them sound. When Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick, you could translate it, it is not those who are sound who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And so, sound doctrine, sound teaching has to do with healthy teaching that gives life and restores. So, Titus's teaching, it's to be healthy, it's to be whole, it's not to be corrupted, it's not to be contaminated with error, 
It's not to be distorted. It's not to be offensive in its content or its language. Rather, it should be whole, pure, accurate, healthy. I wonder if you've ever considered the teachers that you listen to and wondered not just about what they say, but even how they say it, the manner of their preaching. Let me give you two examples that come to my mind about how the manner of preaching can be important. One is that many preachers today, they depend on their personalities, they depend on their sense of humor or their uh, ability to tell gripping stories in powerful ways in order to, to gain a crowd and gain a hearing. They do this in such a way that draws attention away, in fact, from God's Word and onto them or onto uh, the preacher. People might enjoy those kinds of sermons more, but it often distracts from the Word of God, and it distracts from the gospel message itself. However, on the other hand, a second example is those who maybe have really great content, but the manner of their teaching can be offensive. And we see this a lot in online debates and online platforms. People whose ministries are built around uh, arguing with and demeaning and mocking others who they disagree with. Sometimes even people whose doctrine is faulty, but it's the manner by which they do it that is offensive, not just the fact that they've got it right, they've got the right doctrine, but their manner matters too. And so look to teachers and listen to teachers and watch them on YouTube, but don't only listen for those who are faithful to the truth, Look for those who demonstrate godliness in the way that they teach too. And so, teachers like Titus, they're to teach and to model godliness for those under their care. Why? Why are they to teach and demonstrate godliness? Paul tells us, look there at the end of verse 8. He says, those two little words, so that. They signal to us the result of what he's saying. And so, here's the result. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Healthy teaching that's backed up by godly living, it's impossible to condemn. It just makes anyone who opposes it look shameful themselves. It leaves opponents speechless, because what can they say? There's no room for accusation when the person who's teaching is faithful and godly and that it bears good fruit in the lives of others around them. It just puts opponents of Christ to shame. Especially when uh, believers and leaders are practicing what they preach, when they promote godliness through their teaching, it puts anyone who would oppose Christ to shame. And you know, this argument has actually been used throughout church history as a defense of the, the, the truthfulness of the gospel. The Egyptian early church father uh, St. Athanasius wrote, for where the name of the Savior is named, there every demon is expelled. And who else has delivered human beings from natural passions so that adulterers become pure and murderers no longer take up the sword? And those who uh, were cowards become courageous. The gospel transforms our lives, both those that are teaching it and those who are under it, and that puts Christ on display. It makes it seem so clear that God is at work. 
Sound teaching that's matched by a godly example that produces good works in people's lives is a compelling defense for Christianity and against those who would oppose it. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important that we are following godly examples and ourselves being transformed. Following godly examples, beginning with the elders, but by God's grace, there's many more than just the elders that are godly examples to imitate in our church. Even in the instructions to older women to be an example to younger women, we see that it's women as well can be godly examples to us. And it it doesn't even have to be someone uh, older than you to look to as a godly example. Though that's a good instinct, but even here we see Titus was the one being called to be an example, and he was younger than some of the people in the church. So Titus was to set an example to all, and he was likely younger than some of those people in the churches of Crete. So sometimes godly examples are younger than us in age, and maybe even younger in the faith. Maybe their zeal and passion as a young Christian is something worth imitating and learning from. So look for and follow godly examples. Consider the example of those who you might follow and think about what is it about their life that you want to start imitating. Secondly, Paul concludes the list by giving final instructions to bondservants. We see here an encouragement to become a godly example. That's our second point. Become a godly example. We're not just to follow godly examples, but we're to become them ourselves. Look at verses 9 and 10. That's where he addresses the instructions for bondservants. Now, first, before we dive into the instructions, it's important to think about who this group is. The word bondservant is the same word used in the very first verse, where it says, Paul a servant of God, so you can see it's sometimes translated servant. It's sometimes translated slave, in fact, referring to someone who is bound to serving a master. But unlike other forms of slavery throughout church history and throughout um, uh, the history of the world, slavery in the Roman world was not based on race, race or ethnicity. In fact, slavery in this in this period was very, very common amongst people in the Roman Empire. I think one-third of the people that lived in Corinth were uh, slaves, so it was one in three. And while many had terrible lives, others chose to be in slavery. You could achieve many things as a slave. You could have social advancement. You could even purchase your own freedom from slavery, or you could purchase other slaves. One pastor helps us to see how broad it can be by explaining that some slaves served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artisans, barbers, cooks, shopkeepers. And in some instances, slaves were even better educated than their own masters. They had more education. And so that's why it's, it's difficult to translate this word. The ESV translates it here as bondservant rather than slave. Because while it's, it's talking about something that's um, worse than employment in our current day, it's not quite what comes to our minds when we hear the word slave or when we hear that term slavery. And so, as we think about these instructions, it makes the most sense for us to apply the instructions here to ourselves as employees. Now, before we consider what he says about them, it's just amazing to take a moment to think about the fact that 
All of this, all of, all, of the, all of the instructions that we see here are what Paul says flow out from, from the gospel. And so the gospel that we believe has implications, it has implications for our character, it has implications for our conduct, and it even has implications for our career. The gospel, it's like waves that crash onto the seashore. Gospel doctrine washes up over every area of our lives. Jesus cares about your day job. His atoning work on the cross bleeds over into how you crunch numbers as an accountant, or how you stack shelves in a warehouse, or how you manage your employees, or how you interact with your boss, or how your employees even perceive you and think about you. The gospel applies to those things. The very first thing that Paul says, calls for in verse 9, is for us to be submissive to those in authority over us in everything. That's what he says about bond servants to their masters. And in this letter, we see a lot of interaction between those who have authority and those under authority. Parents and children, we see it with here with bond servants and masters. We see it even in the younger women, how to uh, love their husbands and submit to them. Of course, not submit in everything. That doesn't mean submit in sin, but in everything else that a master might call, of, call for us to do. We're to seek to please our employees. Now, this might seem like an impossible call to you if you have a really difficult boss who makes lots of demands. And it's important to note that it doesn't say that you can't look for another job or you can't move out from that situation. But while you're there, while you have committed to a contract and you're working for an employee, in all things that aren't uh, to do with sin, you should be submissive to those leadership. You should seek to please them in your job. So that's the first instruction. But alternatively, Paul says, don't be argumentative. So don't talk back to your bosses. Don't argue with them. Don't pilfer, he says. And to pilfer is to, to hold stuff back for yourself. Now, obviously, for many bondservants, there was a great temptation to steal or petty theft, steal small things, take items. And 2,000 years later, the very same temptation applies to each of us that work in the workplace. Embezzlement, skimming cash off the top, taking things that are company property or their products. These are a temptation for us. I did a little bit of research while I was preparing this sermon, and it was amazing that it's, it's estimated that in the U.S. alone, in businesses in the U.S., they lose up to $110 million every day due to employee-related crimes. $110 million a day. Employees are still stealing today from, from their employers. But it's not only material things that we can take from our bosses either or from our companies. We can effectively steal from our employees by showing up late, leaving early, squandering the time that we're in the office, spending it on Facebook or Twitter. Another stat that I looked at estimated that billions of dollars every year are lost in the workforce productivity as a result merely of social media. If you if you take all the minutes that employees spend on Facebook and you calculate how much of their salary that's worth, billions of dollars every year. 
Can you imagine stealing that much money from our employees to co uh, collectively? So there's temptations for us to squander our time at work. Don't do that. Be the kind of employee that we see pictured here. They follow the boss's instructions. They don't argue with the boss. They seek to please him, not pilfer from him. They're trustworthy. They show all good faith. And again, we see that word, showing. Showing all good faith. They show in their lives that they're faithful and that they're trustworthy. This is the kind of employee to have, isn't it? That's the kind of person you would want to employ. It's also the best kind of employee to be. And if this isn't you, if some of the things I've shared today make you feel pricked in your conscience, that's good. Praise God. That's a mark of the Holy Spirit's work in you. The answer is that transformation is possible through repentance and obedience to Christ. So why should Christians be like this? Why should they be this kind of employee? Again, Paul tells us at the end of verse 10, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn something is to display it and, and to make it look beautiful. And so why does God care about how you do your job? Because it's one way that God has chosen to make the gospel attractive to the watching world to the lost people around us in our workplace. You may be one of the only Christians that your bosses or your colleagues ever meet, and you get to be around them all day long throughout the week. Your life might just be the instrument that God intends to make the gospel attractive to them and to draw them in to His love. Your life in the office can be a powerful demonstration to them of the beauty of Christ crucified for sinners. What an incredible thought that it might be you and how you do your job that God uses to save the Muslim in the next door, or your Hindu boss, or your nominal Christian friend in the workplace. And even as we see these instructions here, even going back as far as verse 1 of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you'll see that every single reason for living gospel-transformed lives is to reflect God's goodness to the watching world. Young women are to love their husbands and their children well, caring for their homes well, so that God's Word won't be reviled by people, outsiders. Titus is to be a transformed teacher, modeling godliness in his life and his teaching so that opponents can't say anything evil about God and about Christians. And bond servants should show all good faith to their masters so that they might make the doctrine of God our Savior more beautiful. What an incredible way that God chooses to work. John Stott illustrates this point as the gospel being like a jewel. And the consistent Christian life is like the setting in which the jewel is held, the, the way that the jewel is presented. And it can help the, the, the Christian life that is consistent with the gospel can help to make the gospel shine all the more brightly for the world. Throughout this whole section, verses 1 through 10, Paul's been describing the things that are fitting with, that flow from sound doctrine, the doctrine of God as our Savior. And so, gospel doctrine gives birth to gospel living in those who have faith. But the two are not to be confused. 
The gospel is not be a good role model and God will be your Savior. The gospel is not be an exemplary employee in order to be saved by God. No, a transformed life flows from the fact that God has already acted in spite of your sin to save us from our sin, from His judgment against our sin. We see this even more clearly in verses 11 through 14, which give the ground in the gospel. The way we can live a transformed life is because God has sent His Son. He sent His Son to save us, not because we're good people, but but because we need saving, because we're not good people. We're sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory that God deserves. And so we deserve His righteous judgment for our sin. We deserve wrath. We deserve condemnation and eternity in hell. But God in His astonishing grace, sent His Son, Jesus, to save us from our sins. Jesus bore the wrath that we deserve, the judgment we deserve when He went to the cross, and He died in the place of sinners. But Jesus doesn't only save us from judgment for our sins. He saves us from the power and the rule of sin in our lives so that we can be changed so that we can be transformed. Through His resurrection from the grave, He saves us from sin's rule. And so now, when we receive the good news by faith, our lives begin to be transformed. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. Jesus reigns in our lives. Friend, you too can be set free from your sin. You can be transformed by the grace that is in Jesus Christ as well. You simply need to recognize that you need that transformation, that you can't save yourself, that you can't change yourself. No, you need to turn in faith to Christ who paid the debt for our sins and promises deliverance from its reign in our lives. You can't save yourself, but He can. He can. And brothers and sisters, gospel when it takes hold of our lives, and as we spend time around godly examples and hearing godly teaching, it begins to run through our veins. The gospel begins to empower us to live new and holy lives that display the beauty of Christ to the watching world around us, that put Christ on display, that make Him look beautiful for the world. Gospel living comes to us through teaching that we hear and the example of faithful Brothers and sisters, just like Titus. Just as a child, as I mentioned at the beginning, grows up by watching and listening to older kids or to their parents or to their friends, so too do Christians grow up into maturity by watching and listening to the godly examples that they have around them. Transformation is a community project. It happens in the context of lives lived together in the church. And when this happens, when our lives are transformed, when older men and older women, fathers and mothers and pastors and employees, are, when our lives are transformed, it will make the jewel of the gospel shine brightly in the dark world that we live. As the Lord Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word taught 
to us. And we pray that you would use the godly examples around us to transform us to be more like Christ, our glorious Savior. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.